Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Habar Ghani, a Bibi Fahodier. This is the African Liberation Media. The day's date is November 29th, 2019. This is what we are told. Questions abound. Just a couple of thoughts. Is Afrocentrism, is it a prerequisite to achieve Pan-Africanism? What mechanisms do we need to implement in order to bring this goal into existence? And one of the reasons why these thoughts occurred to me was because over the weekend I did see the movie Harriet, and I saw some organizational efforts, some mechanisms in place to facilitate the treacherous journey from the Maryland area all the way up to Philadelphia. For me personally, it was a lesson in geography, the proximity of the Chesapeake Bay, which I've personally seen to the eastern seaboard, extending from Baltimore, Maryland, all the way up to Philadelphia. Additionally, I saw the dual role played by the pastor, in a real sense, the spook who sat by the door, who preached a submissive gospel, but facilitated the escape in the education of people when the slave master was not looking. The desire to leave the plantation was definitely one of the key features on the part of a critical mass of the Africans depicted in this movie. In other words, you know, short of being coerced to stay, to stay on the plantation as a result of the threat of a child being uh, sold, most of the Africans desired to leave the plantation. The next time I'm in Philadelphia, I will be vigilant about taking advantage of the historical sites, the contributions of Absalom Jones, Richard Allen, of course, my daughter who lived there mentioned them, but I did not really glean all of the contributions they had have made to the African uh, uplift, the escape process, the employment of Africans, the, uh, the institutional uh, developmental uh, programs the buildings that they had uh, built in order to sustain African life, to educate Africans and to uh, facilitate uh, the viability of their state post uh, their enslavement trauma. We're here with brothers Makaru and brother uh, Amos, and uh, take it away, gentlemen. You wanna talk about what you saw in Harriet? Yeah, we did a show talking about Harriet and the things that happened in the movie. I finally got a chance to watch the movie last night. Well, what was it, last night? No, it was Wednesday night. I watched the movie Wednesday night. And I think some of the things that I saw in the movie were very questionable as it relates to a modern uh, 20th century or 21st century uh, agenda. Um, 
I thought overall, I thought that the movie displayed, you know, you know, a lot of historical facts. But one of the the primary things that I and I'll, I'll be short. One of the primary things that bothered me about how they depicted Harriet was they made her look like a feminist <clears throat> in uh, in many of the scenes after she came back and she tried to take her husband back or her, her uh, who she found out was her ex-husband back to freedom. Um, it seems as though after that she had a hatred for men throughout the rest of the movie. Uh, even if you see the scene where William Steele is taking a pit, taking her picture, and he's trying to uh, help her with her appearance for the picture, and she pretty much slaps his hand away. I thought that that was very um, unrealistic of the way that Harriet, the actual person, felt towards men. Harriet Tubman, she did remarry later in her life. Uh, they didn't really show that. You know, they played some credits at the end where they sort of, you know, showed that. But the but the visual images of her were depicting a woman that had a hatred for men and also her strength came from a fictional character who was uh, a woman that, to me, seemed to be a lesbian. Uh, the way that they... Now, they didn't show any explicit scenes of, you know, this woman kissing on Harry or anything like that. But you, you have this woman who is in the house and, you know, she doesn't appear to have anybody. You know, she doesn't appear to have a husband or anybody. She's a, a rich woman who has never been uh, enslaved. Um, I found it interesting that she ran Harry's bathwater. Most rich, well-to-do black people in those times. They weren't running anybody's water. They had people that worked for them. And a lot of times they were other black people that worked for them. But she was the one who gave Harry the gun. And this is not and this is not a historical figure. This is a fictional character that they put in the movie that happened to be played by a woman who is a lesbian. She was the one that gave Harry the gun. She was the one that taught Harry how to hold a gun, how to shoot the gun. Now, I don't know um, historically who taught Harry how to uh, shoot a gun or hold a gun. I don't know if it was a man or a woman or if she taught herself. But she also made some comments when she was interacting with Harriet that made it seem as though she was sort of not training her but um, convincing her that she didn't need a man or that she was stronger than any other man that she knew. And this is not taking anything away from our ancestor Harriet. It just seems as though from the Hollywood aspect of it, they tried to juxtapose the modern day way that a lot of women feel about men or talk to men into this movie because Harriet also the way that she talked to William Steele, the way she talked to other men throughout the movie, it was somewhat in a forceful manner as if she was 
telling them what to do or she was the boss of them. Um, and I don't really see that from that time period. I don't really know too many women who would talk to a man like that. When you're looking at somebody like Harriet Tubman, for her to actually want to go back into the South or what was it, at that time, you know, Maryland, but it was further south than uh, Philadelphia. For her to go back for her husband shows that she had a love for the black man, which they did, you know, show that. Um, but I felt like, you know, they depicted her that way. And also, and this is, they always do this so that white people can come watch the movie. They make our freedom fighters appear to be people who will compromise or appear to be people who will look weak. They made Harriet look weak in certain scenes. Like the scene where she didn't shoot the white slave monster. She let him go after everything that he did. And then in the next scene following that, she prepares to go into war to kill people. So how you gonna how you gonna on one hand have the opportunity to kill this white slave monster, but you let him go, and then you go and you begin to fight this war. To me, that does two things. In the eyes of white people, her killing a white slave monster is illegitimate. No matter if you oppressed, if you killed a white person at that time, even to this day, white people will say that black people are in the wrong. But if you fought in a war, like the American Revolutionary War, like Crispus Attucks, or if you fought in the Civil War and you killed white people then, well, then that could be justified. That could be legitimized. And in the eyes of white America, that could also legitimize you being placed on the twenty dollar bill. You see, they would never put in that turn on a twenty on, on, on any American currency. It's a reason why nobody knows where where his body was even disposed of. I have problems, brother, with uh, the suggestion that she be placed on the twenty dollar bill because. You know, slavery being the bulwark of the capitalist system, and now all of a sudden you want to place on a $20 bill. You know, if Harriet were able to speak or to appear over the wall of time, I think she would have an objection to this being placed on capitalist currency. Um, of course, you know, our brother Nat Turner, his remains have been returned to Cortland, Virginia. Uh, for years they were up in... Uh, Gary, Indiana, uh, good brother, former mayor of Gary, Richard Hatcher. You mean his head? His head, yeah. exactly, his skull, yeah. absolutely. Uh, I did the righteous thing and returned the uh, skull to the relatives of Nat Turner. I would like to visit Cortland uh, just to be in close proximity to his remains. I heard that it was a white guy who had in his family they had a wallet that was made out of Nat Turner skin. I don't doubt it one bit, brother. Yeah. You know, and in, in fact, our body parts were typically used, as you well know, 
souvenirs uh, at these uh, human roasts, these picnics. Uh, body parts made into souvenirs, pictures taken as postcards, uh, you know, which reflect clearly the barbaric abyss, the depravity of European thought and behavior yeah, as it relates to the African people. It's just an ongoing thing, uh, not in the past. Um, the James Bird situation being dismembered, uh, going back, infants being fed to gators, used as chum, etc., uh, etc., etc. Et uh, the role of the black comprador was definitely uh, one of the worst scenes in the movie uh, when he kicked the sister in the um, hotel. And I didn't understand in that scene that you're talking about, I didn't understand how they made Harriet look like she was hiding and not willing to go out there and shoot both of those, both the Negro and, you know, the white person. I don't understand why they made her look like she was afraid to, to help somebody who she saw being stomped out. But then, you know, when she was running with, you know, her family or friends that she was helping to escape, she had no problem pulling a gun on them. Mm -hmm. So we know that Harry carried this gun historically. And even though there's no accounts of her shooting anybody, I'm pretty sure during those times, there were times when she had to use that gun. Yeah, you'll find that contradiction throughout Hollywood. You know, I noticed that in many of the Spike Lee joints. You know, always the sister would unrobe. Mm. Do the right thing, white woman does not unrobe. Mm. You know, and so you're gonna find, it seems to me that you find these contradictions. Uh, I was, brother, I mean, I hate to digress, but uh, Go back to Eddie Glaud, you know, uh, and Francis Wilson clearly talked about it, uh, this move toward equanimity and, here, you know, the contradictions that oftentimes we don't see. I'm glad you, you, you have brought that out. I think that people got upset about things related to the movie that I felt like were very trivial in regards to who the actor was, Yeah. Um, you know, or... You know, a lot of people tried to say that uh, that only, you know, black people from America should be playing these roles. And this is where the separation comes into play. We talk about us being Africans. We are all Africans, no matter where we got dropped off at. We're still all from the motherland. So the same way that you have American actors that have played Africans in movies, just like, you know, Denzel played. Biko. Stephen Biko. Mm -hmm. um, there was no outcry, no outrage from an American uh, or, or American citizen, I should say, an African that's in America, playing someone who was from the continent. So we got to get off of this high horse. And that's really that, you know, the whole mindset that goes into um, Yvette Carnell's Adars oh, and Tariq Nasheed's uh, Foundation of Black Americans and all these other groups that are really 
dividing us and it's not going to give us any power trying to classify, isolate, isolate ourselves away from everyone else that's African within somebody else's land. <laughs> right. If you want to go to Africa and I'm going to keep it real with you. If you want to go to Africa and take over or go anywhere and take over a territory and you own the land and then you start your own nation out of people that you want to accept. There's more power in that than staying in America in the land that is owned by white people and ran by white people and claiming that you are a separate group outside of the rest of your African brothers and sisters. That's limiting yourself and removing yourself from a greater uh, a greater opportunity to, to achieve real power. Whereas if you were to work with people and see each other as one people, we'll be able to achieve a lot more. You know, brother, you, you kind of remind me of Marcus Mosiah Garvey, you know, uh, help me here. I, I remember him saying, no African anywhere in the world will be respected until Africa is free. That's right. You know, and, 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 and in fact, uh, you know, thus, it goes back to my earlier statement, you know, should Afrocentricity, centrism precede pan-Africanism you know whether it's you know 100 years down the road uh, you know uh, 50 years down the road you know and, and, and then what mechanisms you know do we have to have in place to bring this into existence so that we can maximize our power to achieve this end you know pan-Africanism or you know African liberation etc 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 uh and these things have only come about now. I mean, it seems as though as time goes on, you would think our mindset would get better, but our mindset has become more corrupt, more degenerate, and more backwards. Mm. If you look during the times when African countries were gaining their independence, Sega Touré, Kwame Touré, and um, Kwame Nkrumah, John Henry Clark, these Africans had no problems looking at each other as one people. As African people, yeah, and and now you know we're in a time now where people who call themselves leaders are actually promoting, separating, or not wanting having anything to do with Africa. One aim, one destiny. There was another thing that caught me in the movie too: how easily the slave traders were willing to ideologically coalesce in spite of their differences and form a unified front in their attempts to uh, recover their quote-unquote property. Hmm. It was just, uh, I was able to handle it, brother. In fact, um, I, I, you know, I, the description that she gave of the enslavement prior to freeing the uh, what do you call it, brother? Slave monster. Slave monster. I got yeah. that from uh, Brother Tashango. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, sister described girls being raped before their menses, the horrors of slavery, this kind of thing. But, of course, we are mindful of the fact that, you know, sisters have always played a significant role. I was listening to Dr. Ture talk about uh, his involvement in SNCC, where they had to uh, draft uh, five sisters for the Congress 
Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, he won't say the weak-kneed politician who was to represent the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party was a brother. You know, the five sisters, the weak-kneed one was the brother. You know, perhaps some sociological conditioning or what have you. um, you You know better than anyone, brother, the litany of sisters on the African continent who have struggled for our liberation and the advances that occurred, Stokely talking, I'm paraphrasing, you know, psychologically, militarily, from a technological standpoint, and there was no compromise. His words. And I think, too, I, I heard the brother uh, Darren Muhammad say that our story, our history is not pre-G-13. And what he meant by that is maybe people felt like the movie wasn't hard enough. Um, one thing I will say is that I think we do a disservice or not, not us because we're not the ones, you know, funding or producing the movie, but I'll say that, bottom line, but I'll say that the people who do this, they do a disservice to the legacy of anybody that they're talking about when you don't really go into detail and show until it's full extent. Just like with uh, Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation with uh, the story he did on Nat Turner. People really shouldn't have been able to see the suffering that Nat Turner had to go through and the sacrifice that he had to, to be willing to make to really be able to understand what he went through. And you do uh, you do an ancestor a disservice when you tell that story lightly. I think that we really got to get back. If, if we want our children to really understand the horrors of what slavery was mm-hmm. and give them the confidence and the motivation to want to really achieve liberation because of not only what happened to us but our current condition, we have to really... Tell it like it is. Now, I'm not saying it's not going to be, in, in all film, it's going to be some dramatization. It's always going to be some things that are added in. But it's what you take out that's the problem. Yeah. You, you know, sadly, bro, before I, we turn it over to Brother McCarroll, because I know he got buku stuff to espouse, we live in a time, 2019, where it's the end of literacy and the triumph of spectacle. <laughs> you know, the vast majority of our people are going to turn on YouTube. I, you got to read uh, Baruti about the slave couple. Koffel, mm. Kimbuka, and the various uh, books that he has, a series, you know, to really grasp the horror of the horrors. I mean, I, I just got chill bumps. I have chill bumps right now just thinking about what he described in that book. Yeah. You know, just way beyond, you know, anything that Alex Haley or uh, Lerone Bennett ever wrote because you walk away and children walk away not really understanding like i said they they don't really understand slavery was a horrible process no romanticizing it it was a horrible process that our ancestors went through and we do them a disservice when we don't tell that story to the fullest when you can make a horror movie like saw and put all of the gore and the blood and everything inside of the movie for people to get a kick out of seeing a scary movie, 
then when you tell a real story that was a horrific story, in order for people to empathize and have the respect for what it was, they need to be able to see actually what happened. Now I'm reminded of a European um, writer, a gentleman by the name of Rod Serling. He wrote a book called The Twilight Zone, and he was asked by Johnny Carson one night, he said, what is the most horrible thing you have ever seen? And he listed a comedy sitcom, com. he said, Hogan's Heroes. Mm. Johnny said, well, why? You know, looked at him in a state of utter amusement. He said, because you're joking about these devils. I mean, that's not the word he used, but mm -hmm. he was talking about the Nazis. He said, I just find that very horrible. <laughs> I mean, look, just look at how they made, uh, what's the movie? Passion of the Christ. They made you believe that a fictional character named Jesus actually suffered that hard. Somebody that never existed. But when it comes to your ancestors, they want to just, we'll cut to another scene. We're not going to show this suffering. Because then it takes the weight off of, it takes the weight off of the people who did it to you. Mm -hmm. They have no responsibility or they don't feel any type of, uh, you know, remorse uh, or, or any guilt, I should say, for the crimes that their ancestors committed that they've benefited from. By and large, brother, facts don't matter right. when it comes to the European. You know, we live in a time, black man, where uh, <laughs> the line between illusion and reality has been blurred. You're right. Yeah, You're right. you know that, that, that I hear that from white folk all the all the time. Excuse me. That's why you got kids saying that I'm a girl when they was born a boy, <laughs> and people think that you should accept that, or people think you should use quote unquote pronouns Sucks, to uh, to define somebody. Uh, two plus two is five. War is peace. Peace is war. Hate is love. Love is hate. You've had teachers that have been fired for not referring to a child by their proper pronoun. Bruh, I got it the other day. Mr. Swilly, you are assuming my gender. <laughs> Young ladies, could you please line up? You know, and then I had a brother, you know. <laughs> I said, I'm not gonna fight this, okay? If that's what you wanna do, so be it. It's not worth it. I'm gonna follow the line of least resistance, mm. brother. And then I had one kid tell me that there was something like 60 classifications of gender. I say, I'm done. McCarroll, <laughs> <laughs> help us, bro. <laughs> now, just like the, uh, was it in Alabama? Oh, I can't remember God. where it was now. The uh, the black guy got elected uh, homecoming queen. Oh, God. Um, just a couple of things. Amistad, I thought, showed a lot of the, brutality of the it did. of the middle passage so you know every, every now and then one will sneak Good, through goodbye Uncle Tom did too yeah and they um, they're making they're supposedly be supposedly making a movie about a Manorinus uh, one of our greatest warrior queens and it, it'll be interesting to see how much of that whatever happened to the Taharka movie I don't know what happened to the Taharka movie, but uh, the Amanda Arenas movie supposedly 
it may not be in production, but uh, it's certainly planned. I, I don't can't remember if it's out of uh, Tyler Perry Studios or where, but um, they uh, they it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what they what they actually show. This sister on the on the battlefield, losing an eye in battle and continuing to fight and um, forcing the Romans to sign a peace treaty. So, and I think that'll be very enlightening to a lot of people who don't know. The rich history in Sudan. Yeah, yeah. I was telling you that I ran into a, a European that didn't even know Sudan had pyramids. Didn't even know, and mm. and ninety nine percent of our people in Africa, not to mention the diaspora, if you walked up to them and say, "Who was the Manarinas?" they'd be looking at you like, "Who?" You know, they all know Jesus Christ, but they don't know that. Um, I saw an uh, interesting thing. Somebody posed a question to to the uh, ADOS leaders, American descendants of slavery, and I, I don't know how people can can allow themselves to def, to define themselves or be be defined as something as self denigrating as uh, descendants of slaves, and you know they they they, they go through. I mean, they kind of like the queers the way now they're going through everything. They went through. Um, uh, I think uh, Dr. King's last book, um, where, was it Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos of Community? Uh, yes, sir. The last one? Yes, sir. Yeah, he was saying, you know, he they, they, he had a little section in there where he was talking about uh, Africans in America and or Negroes, I think. It's, he was describing them and, and Africans on the continent. And, and, of course, they nitpicked, and they picked, they picked this part out that said that— uh, you know, we are we are descendants of slaves. This was Dr. King talking when he was writing the book in 1968. So this guy posed a question. He said, um, "He said I want to know." He said, uh, "The Africans who went from America to Liberia and now live in Liberia are they ADOS?" And of course, there was no there was no response from the. Uh, from the peanut gallery, but let me move on to. Well, what about that? Like you said, I'm gonna let you go, but mm-hmm. I just want to also pose a question. And what, what, what about the free black people that were here too? Yeah, I mean, uh, are they descendants of slaves? Right. Yeah. So, so I mean, you got <laughs> some of them were slave owners. Yeah. So you got that. Yeah. I mean, William Ellison and his sons, right down there in South Carolina, the largest black slave owner documented so far in history. We have to always say so far because there's so much information being uncovered all the time. But um yeah, certainly the story of William Ellison and his and his and her and his sons and, and others, uh, you know, it's, but but it's a it's a ridiculous category in terms of, like you said, isolation, cutting yourself off from hundreds of thousands of years of history, particularly uh, now valley civilizations. Uh, just um, it, you have to really wonder: Is this not a you know white supremacist uh, fifth columnist or psyops? This this being run using uh, reparations as a guise. But we we could talk about that and maybe get uh, someone to come on and really go in on it. Um, we saw this week that a law enforcement institute is planning to give Brant Jean, mm. the brother of the murdered 
Botham Jean, who was uh, was killed by a police officer, uh, Amber Geiger, in Dallas. Uh, they're planning to give Jean a Courage Award, and <laughs> and it's and it's it's it says uh, this is uh, from the local Dallas media. Brand Jean to receive Ethical Courage Award for forgiving Amber Geiger during murder trial sentencing. And my response was, there's nothing ethical about this. Ethics is based on truth, justice, propriety, and reciprocity. That's just to name some of the virtues. He should be given a confusion award, but we understand why this law enforcement agency gave him this award, Brant Jean, represents the self-abnegation and delusion they want to see in African people. Now, this is the, the director of the, the Institute for Law Enforcement Administration, who is the organization that's giving uh, the confused young man this award. He says, Brant Jean represents the best in us, despite an unimaginable loss he saw the humanity in the person responsible for his brother's death. He saw her pain and regret and had the ability to show empathy, caring, and forgiveness. I can't think of an act that was more courageous. That one act did much to help uh, the Dallas community to heal, and this was uh, by Gregory Smith of the, um, of the law enforcement agency. <laughs> And, uh, you know, we had a lot of comments on our page from uh, Brother Singleton and Antan Middleton and uh, Rusty Swilly and uh, Mary Jo. Mac did she Mary Jo? Did she go to school with you? Or she, she did, brother. Okay. She's a white girl, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, you, so. You uh, used to let us know who was coming down. Okay. Well, you know. Swill, you're going to have to see the administration this yeah, week. Yeah, the whites book, huh? Okay. Uh, but, but anyway. Uh, Marcaru Speaks said, Brand Jean, this is the quote, Brand Jean saw the humanity, humanity in the person responsible for his brother's death. Brand Jean is hallucinating, seeing things that don't exist. Sure. And then I quoted uh, from uh, the Smoke Town, Smokey Robinson, just like the desert shows a thirsty man a green oasis where there's only sand. The love I saw in you was just a mirage, one of the great songs by Smokey Robinson and the miracles. But what this what this sad display of uh, what Doctor the great Doctor uh, Asa Grant Hilliard Baba Baba before called uh, mental bondage. He said mental bondage is invisible violence, mm. and the violence may be invisible when it's being inflicted, but there are definitely visible signs of it. This is a traumatized mind. That, uh, that that's on display here. So it took me back to the first book that I heard of from the, the brilliant African Senate scholar, one of the most brilliant minds the African world has ever produced, Dr. Dr. Amos N. Wilson. And I just looked upon hearing his name and hearing about this book one night, listening to a conversation between Dr. Jawanza Kanjufu and uh, the great uh, informationalist uh, Bob Law. So in, in this book, Dr. Wilson, and I think he's writing this in about maybe 1978, 79, somewhere in that time frame, so understand the language. 
He said the history of the black man in America can easily be conceived as the history of the world's most massive and successful experiment in behavior modification and attitude change. Okay, now he's using the term the black man because that's the way the patriarchal language taught us to speak. Of course, it's the, actually the history of the African person, the African people in America, but not just in America, certainly in the, in the entire diaspora and uh, on the African continent uh, in, in, in many ways, can be easily conceived as the history of the world's most massive and successful experiment in behavioral modification and attitude change through a systematic program which punished or left unrewarded initiative, originality, independence, cohesiveness, and industry among black people, and which rewarded black servility, docility, self-abnegation, demonstrated belief in their inferiority, dependence, and the love of white, and a belief in the inherent right, rightness, and the hatred of black, and belief in its inherent wrongness. This punishment reward system effectively developed a people and culture which fearfully avoids initiative, originality, independence, cohesiveness, and industry in terms of its own self-interest, a people in whom values have almost been completely extinguished. Now, I'll come, I'll come back to, to the quote in a minute, but there's so many powerful things that the great, the great Amos N. Wilson out of Hattiesburg, uh, Mississippi, said here, uh, Morehouse College, the the system of reward and punishment and, and and this is a this is a 500 year process or uh professor chin what he calls the chattelization race war which was launched by europeans in 1441 but which clearly escalated after the disaster of 1492 it it created it 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 punished it punished initiative originality, independence, cohesiveness, and industry, and it rewarded black civility, docility, self-abnegation, this demonstrated belief in their inferiority, dependence, the love of white, and belief in their rightness, and the hatred of black, and belief in their wrong. I mean, this is what this, this really sad spectacle of a young person uh, and we just using him really as a metaphor for you, you could describe a lot of the of the entire black world like this when, you know, you're almost over in Ghana looking at white Jesus on every corner, you know, on buses, <laughs> pictures of Jesus on the buses. That's right. I mean, it's so incredible. This this Negro in um, in Nigeria is trying to build the largest statue of Jesus. <laughs> In, in that part of the world, and of course we remember the uh, horrible neo-colonialist president of Cote d'Ivoire, Félix Houphouët Bagnier, building the largest Catholic basilica on the planet in Abidjan. Mm. I mean, th th this is th th this is what we're talking about here. You know, this is this is this is civility, docility, self-abnegation. All of all of these all of these things are on display here. So Dr. Wilson said the, the, the consequence, he said, the system affected attitudes of self-hatred, lack of self-confidence in black people. The consequences of such a thorough behavior modification program has been that the black parent 
in an effort to socialize his or her child to survive in a white world, and as a result of his own training, uses similar behavior modification to train his or her children. The program Black Parent programs his children in his image. Thus, the black child learns early in his life, as his parents learned before him, that, that self-interested and group-interested initiative, originality, independence, and industry, interest which, when not placed in the service of whites, is dangerous and unrewarding. He learns early the same thing about self-love, self-confidence, etc. He also learns that ideas, values, behavior patterns, beliefs, which have not earned the white seal of approval, are invalid and cannot be trusted. Thus, he comes to believe in his own self-generated, his own comes to believe that his own self-generated ideas are worthless and invalid unless approved by whites, and he therefore learns to look up to whites and look down on himself. Consequently, early in his life, the black child becomes outgroup white-oriented. This type of orientation is detrimental to blacks in every area of functioning. And in the effort to be more positively programmed, our children, and he, got, he goes on to, to has, has a series of recommendations as, as to how to solve this. But, I mean, I just thought, of, I, I went back to Amos when I was looking at this uh, situation with this, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's truly. Pathetic, it's, man. It's, 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 yeah, pathetic, man. It's, uh, it's disgusting. And, but, but, it, but it's displayed in, a, in a lot of different ways, you know. Kanye West. I mean, you could say you could just you could go down the line and lane and name a lot of people. It's displayed in the stray bullets that kill our children and young people in the streets. You know, it's displayed in so 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 many ways that uh, you know. And this is this is one of the reasons why you know we have Kwanzaa coming. This is one of the reasons why. Uh, Dr. Maulana Karinga emphasized the cultural revolution, the necessary for a revolution that would break the monopoly. Uh, these, uh, you know, 500 plus years of white supremacist Eurocentric, you know, thinking and thought and ideas have have had on our minds. I mean, the, the need for the cultural revolution, which uh, J. Edgar by day, Mary by night, was able to drive a wedge between people who had been unified. Karinga, Maulana Karinga, Huey Newton, and Bobby Seale all came out of the same organization, Donald Warden's African American Association in Oakland. They were all unified. They were they they worked together, and there was no difference. So we, I'm emphasizing culture. You emphasizing revolution. They they all need one another, and, and, and it's like you said, what comes first? I mean, what comes what comes first? But I, I mean, I think that that we have to see. You know, I, was t- I had a conversation with a guy the other day. With, he was uh, he was railing against Harry Belafonte, and he tried to say, well, you know, Harry attacked Kwame Ture and whatnot. So I just went back to read it for revolution and read a lot of the positive things that, that Kwame said about Harry, including Harry uh, paying for uh, people from SNCC and MFDP, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, including Fannie Lou Hamer and others, to go to Guinea at the invitation of Sacred Ture in 1964. And so I'm just saying, you know, it's, it's so necessary for always to, to, to view things, you know, from the perspective of uh, African-centered holistic thinking. But what I told a brother is I said, you got to realize, Kwame Ture didn't jump out in 1960 talking about black power. 
or quote unquote pan with a small p Africanism, right? There was a process. And in and in processes, you have a lot of moving parts. You see, the the catalyst may not be the one who drives you to your final def, uh, destination. For example, uh, you know, Rosa Parks, right? Um, obviously had been an activist for years before she, you know, made her courageous decision, uh, but was forced out of Montgomery by white supremacy dynamic. Uh, you know, Brothers McCain and Blair, you know, sitting in at the Woolworths, North Carolina A&T, the A&T Ford is set in there. W without them, you don't get to Kwame Ture, Baba Mikasa, James Foreman talking about black power. You got that whole process Robert and Mabel Williams with guns, part of that process. Carmichael, Stokely, then Kwame Ture, started on the Freedom Rides. You know, jailed, arrested in Jackson, and then sent to the notorious Parchman mm -hmm. Penitentiary, part of the process. And so we have to understand how, you know, these processes. But right now, right now, we are grappling just trying to hold on to bits and pieces because there is no mass movement for African liberation in the African world. There are, there are, there are different pockets of resistance, but not the kind of mass movement that, that's required to reverse this world's greatest experiment in behavioral modification and attitude change. You're talking about these processes, brother. Um, you know, it's sad that I've heard some of our esteemed scholars talk about President Obama being the culmination of this process. And we're talking about Angela Davis, <laughs> you know, which I find very interesting that <laughs> this was the ultimate goal that we should uh, uh, pursue. Obama know. said that. If it if Bernie Sanders becomes the front runner, he will actively campaign against him. Oh, oh, there's no doubt. <laughs> Obama said that. Yeah, because because he works that's, for the. This is what Black Agenda report. I, I, well, I, Th that's what they reported. That, 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 that's where I was going with it, brother. Mm -hmm. You know, given our history of and our desire to achieve social transformation, I mean, nobody occupies pristine space. But, you know, this gentleman, Obama from Chicago, is talking about maintaining the status quo. And his preference is to endorse a man who has whatever stage of Alzheimer's, who has not met a segregationist from Strom Thurmond to Jesse Helms. Jesse Helms <laughs> to whoever. To whoever. He never met a segregationist that he didn't like. You know, who he caught. Who was he endorsing? We're talking well, Joe, Joe Biden. Biden. Oh, okay. Joseph yeah, Biden. And, and it's sad. You have to catch me up because I don't. Well, that's all right, brother. This, this, you know, you don't really deal with the mainstream. <laughs> well, you know, and, 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 and it's not that we are certainly here. We're not endorsing Bernie Sanders. But we Heck but, no. But, 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 what we, but what we're talking about is Obama in representing, being rewarded, being Rewarded Handsomely. tremendously on the way to becoming a billionaire, he and his wife Michelle, being rewarded for black civility, docility, self abnegation. Right? That's what he's being that's what he's being rewarded for. 
And, you know, that's why that's why I call him the most brilliant stroke of disguised hypocrisy, you know, in American political history. But but you have that level, like I said, then you have the, the level of this this young man, family from who is it, St. Lucia, uh, where they're from. Uh, St. Lucia, I believe, is part of the, uh, quote unquote, British West Indies, I yeah. believe. I may be wrong about that, but I believe it. I believe it is. And um, and so, you know, they they are traveling, actually, you know, to see him get this prestigious award. But but but, you know, you see you see this this servitude uh, just just across the board. I mean, we could we could just mention so many, so many examples of that. Uh, In my opinion, the uh, the the. Zionists or the Jews who hijacked what what started off as a positive cultural formation, hip hop, and and then began to promote the most negative aspects, NWA, and 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 and, and all of this uh, self destruction. You know, the, the cool Modi and uh, uh, KRS and those guys tried to tell us then self destruction. We headed for self destruction, but it was it was overwhelmed. It was overwhelmed, you know, uh, Jay Z and and all of, and and all this this total the, the the total impact. I mean, that's that that in my opinion, uh, Jay Z is a billionaire now. He's the fifth black billionaire, black billionaire in the United States. But this is again representing what civility, docility, self abnegation. Because when you know, you 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 got ninety nine problems, but a B ain't one, right? What is your mother, brother? What is your wife? What is your little daughter? Is is she a, a B? Little Lil Wayne says, "I want to f every girl in the world." I mean, you know, and this this is what. Get, but see that it's all it's all part of it's institutionalized white supremacy and institutionalized white supremacy. In the third cycle, has a very has been very adept at uh, co-opting positives. And in purchasing uh, slaves to do their bidding mm-hmm. and to spread their propaganda, they have see this. They've been very, very, very adept at doing that here in the third cycle of white supremacy. Obama being probably the prime example, but there's so many other examples, particularly in the entertainment industry. Go ahead, brother Amos. Yeah, we got a little bit of time left. I wanted to touch on a couple of things on the continent that's happening. Uh, it was reported by African News that uh, the Eritrean government has caught uh, the Qatari government for trying to use Sudan uh, for a destabilization agenda uh, in Eritrea. Mm. Uh, here it says that the Eritrean government has leveled destabilization claims against Qatar, saying the Gulf nation was through an, uh, an elaborate scheme using Sudan as its springboard. Mm says uh, a November 28, 2019 statement from the Eritrean Ministry of Information said the Qatari government was deploying religious, political, and guerrilla tactics to achieve its aim of destabilizing Eritrea. The current development is the latest round of accusation that is Mars throwing at Doha. Eritrea has also in the past jabbed the Doha-based Al Jazeera news outlet for biased and unprofessional reportage on the country. Hmm. The 10-point scheme of subversion that Qatar has mapped out 
consists of the scheme also includes fueling ethnic clashes in Port Sudan. Mm. So there are ten points that they put here. Uh, the first one, the first point is to to regroup Eritrean opposition political leaders, unify their associations, and extend requisite support to the latter. Number two, to give special focus to Eritrean youth unify their associations and incite them to engage in acts of rebellion against the Eritrean government. Three, to instill religious extremism on Eritrean Islamist opposition elements and thereby induce an uprising of Eritrean Muslims against their compatriots. Four, to sow the seeds of ethnic cleavage and hatred among the Eritrean people. Five, to launch efforts to induce protests and demonstrations in Eritrean cities against the government. Six, to give military training in the Sudan to the Muslim Brotherhood opposition elements in planting of landmines, ambushes, and assassinations of prominent government officials mm. and to facilitate their infiltration into Eritrea to conduct these operations. Seven, to assassinate influential Eritrean leaders. Eight, to conduct acts of economic sabotage in Eritrea. Nine, to intensify hostile propaganda. And ten, to publicize human rights violations in Eritrea international organizations in foreign countries to disseminate documents and videos to that effect. Hmm. Now, one of the things we know is that Qatar is an ally of the United States along with Saudi Arabia. So this could be, in some factors, the U.S. working through Qatar to destabilize this African country. But this goes to the quote that Dr. John Henry Clark said when he told us we have no friends. So many of us, you know, who, you know, practice Islam and we look to what they call the Middle East as this great place of where this religion started and came from. We have to keep in mind and be aware that everyone is trying to get their hands on the African continent. Mm. They use these religions like Islam and Christianity and Judaism as a weapon, they weaponize it against African people as what was discovered here by the Eritrean government. Eritrea is actually a country, as you know, historically, that was a part of Ethiopia. But then once the uh, Ethiopians fought the Italians uh, in the second Ethiopian-Italian war, they were able to create a border where the Italians were able to, to take over Eritrea as a colony. So um, that's one of the things that's happening on the continent right now. Also, there have been reports uh, where there's propaganda coming out of Zimbabwe, where you have a UN official who went into Zimbabwe and reported that Zimbabwe is on the verge of a crisis, a food shortage, and they call it a man-made food shortage, saying that the government is dysfunctional, corrupt. Uh, they blame... Uh, Menengagwa's administration saying that he hasn't been able to deliver on the economic prosperity that he promised in his campaign. It's only been two years since he's been elected in office, but they're already saying that he shouldn't have been able to clean up, um, <laughs> you know, everything that's happening there in, in, in such a short time period. Yeah, since everything since Cecil Rhodes, right? Right, right, <laughs> right. Now, I was recently in Zimbabwe, and I didn't, from my from my trip, I didn't see um, this food shortage. I did, however, see, you know, there were issues uh, with electricity. Uh, there were issues with water. But 
there was also a major drought that took place mm-hmm. last year, and it was also very dry there when I went um, because the rain season, uh, they're waiting on the rain season to come. But this is something that happens in Zimbabwe uh, pretty much every year. There's a drought period during the dry season where you have a lot of wildlife animals that die due to there not being enough water mm-hmm. and things of this nature. Interesting. So, um, but this is just nature taking its course, you know, because, you know, once the rains come back, then that's when you will be able to have uh, a good planting season and a good harvest for the next year. Well, you know, last year um, in 2018, um, I, think we, I think it was 2018, uh, ZANU PF reported that they had the largest maize crop in the history of the country, even, even, even during the years when the, the quote of the great white farmers <laughs> were were you know running the agriculture so that you know that's what they reported last year but they said these things are cyclical and and certainly global warming doesn't help a uh, couple of things regarding um the uh Qataris e- even though they're in the in the Saudis are kind of jostling for something right now um they were they sent their marine corps to Libya in 2011 and they were on the front lines fighting to overthrow Muammar Gaddafi. In fact, they were the force, and Gaddafi had escaped to his home, CERT, and he was driven out. And that's, that's when uh, a U.S. drone and a uh, NATO F-16 attacked his convoy, and that's how he wound up, you know, in the uh, gully, you know, getting, you know, getting uh, captured. Uh, but it, but it was Qatari Marines that were that were at the at the forefront of that fight. The other thing is the uh, Al Bashir uh, government of Sudan, and I don't know if it's continuing under the present government. It may be. First of all, Sudan isn't that stable itself, <laughs> so I don't know how they you know get off trying to destabilize someone else, but. They they were allowing the Saudis to buy Sudanic Africans to be mercenaries fighting in Yemen. And they gave these guys all these promises about how much money they were going to get killed, and they literally fed them to slaughter. So, I mean, I really don't know what it takes for African people to wake up, but one of the things about uh, Eritrea or Eritrea, whatever you want to have to pronounce it, uh, there's a, there's a guy who lives there, a white guy, named Thomas C. Mountain. He went to school with Obama, the same private school, this private school that Obama went to, which is supposed to be one of the most exclusive schools in the world. This guy came out as a radical, and he lives there, and he does, if, if you will uh, Google him, he does some of the most positive reporting. He's always been pro Eritrea, and he's he's done a lot of positive reporting, particularly during the years when there were conflicts between Ethiopia and Eritrea, and he was he always came down on the uh, on the European on the Eritrean side, and, and that's very interesting that you had you had Obama and, and a white guy that became a radical in the school, and that guy now lives in 
uh, Eritrea, and he does a very, very, very positive reporting. But one of the things I'm wondering in terms of this destabilization, particularly with uh, Abe Ahmed, you know, Abe Ahmed was, got involved to try to resolve the, the conflict in Sudan. And he's also been trying to bring uh, the, the, uh, the factions in South Sudan together. So is this not a, a short, uh, 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 sort of like a, a panzer-penzer move, like we saw the other night when we was watching the, uh, the World at War, when we were watching how, how, how the panzers and how, how the Russians used the same thing on them to trap them in Stalingrad. You wonder if this isn't a move against Abay Ahmed's flank mm. by attacking, you know, by, by coming down on destabilizing Eritrea. Because one of the things that they want to be able to do is use uh, the port there, right, and to, um, you know, to, to be able to export their products. So, you know, th these are things that, 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 that we need to think about. And, you know, and that's why we do what we do at African Liberation Media. And to your point, I was when I was in Sudan, mm -hmm. And I was in this restaurant. I saw a group of Saudi men. Um, looked like they looked like government officials meeting with uh, some Africans. They were eating lunch, but they could tell it was. You could look and tell it was a business discussion. So I don't know what was being discussed, or what you're talking about was a part of what was being discussed. Yeah, it probably was because you know they've been fighting in Yemen for for years. And that was my first time seeing Saudis in Africa. It was a proxy wow. proxy war against Iran, but uh, you know this is why we do what we do at African Liberation Media to bring you these uh, countervailing views and values. Yes, sir. African Liberation Media. I'm here with Brother Amos and Brother Makaru, cognizant of the fact that copper doors come in all colors, and for African people to wake up and gain agency, we'll have to oust many of our leaders. Peace and blessing. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not jobs, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. You are buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.